Hello and welcome to the Keeping the Peace podcast with me, your host, Alexis Powell Howard. Today I'm at the Priory HQ police station in Hull and we're talking about bereavement and loss. I'm joined by Sandy Powdrell, who's a health and wellbeing manager, and ACO, Assistant Chief Officer, Nancy Shackleton. Um, So I think it would be good good to start with to just get a sense of both of your roles and and, uh, kind of where you fit in the organisation, really. If I come to you first, Sandy, what's your kind of role and remit? Hi, yes, so I work in the Occupational Health and Wellbeing Unit. Um, I, as the health and wellbeing manager, manage the, the wellbeing side of the unit, which is, it's actually a really fun job to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I work out with the senior psychotherapist and the um, senior health nurse advisor um, who deal with the other aspects of all wellbeing. Mm. Um, so my role really is to make sure that culturally within the organisation, we are trying to change the culture to one of wellbeing mm. and to show you know, it's okay and allowed for people to care. Mm. So I have a number of um, activities that are across the force, but I also support all the local wellbeing boards um, in achieving the things that they want to achieve. Mm. Okay, so quite quite a lot to do. Yes, <laughs> yes. And that cultural work is really interesting. I love all that kind of stuff. So yes. it sounds like you really you love it, but it's it's really interesting as well at the same time. It's really interesting. It's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, I've historically dealt with um, with the, I've worked in the force for a good twenty three years. Mm-hmm. So from um, pe- within people services, which is where occupational health and wellbeing sits, mm-hmm. um, I still will oversee um, some situations where the support maybe hasn't always been readily available so we make sure and we service recover that to make sure that that does happen mm. um but yeah it's interesting it's it's yeah it's it's in depth and you only get to know a lot of people yeah absolutely okay thank you for that nancy i'm going to come to you so just tell us a little bit about your role and your remit within humberside okay so i'm one of the chief officers at humberside police um i'm the civilian member of staff so i'm not a warranted police officer and i look after five principal departments uh the human resources of the people department uh, the money department the it department the buildings department and the car department <laughs> so literally nothing standing unless you <laughs> a little bit like that um, and I was really interested in today because I think there's both, um, as a senior manager, there's both a personal role that you have in mm. bereavement and there's also a professional role that you have in bereavement. And I think the two are often intertwined mm. about how you see things through your own personal lens. So really happy to be included on this. And I hope that for somebody listening, something that either Sandy or I say today makes mm. them feel less alone. Yeah, I mean, this is, just to put this into context, really, this wasn't a podcast we planned to do today, was it? It was something we've been talking about as the day has gone on and we decided that we would do this. So, um Again, I hope, in line with what you're saying, Nancy, that this will be something that will help somebody. It's, uh, you know, when I think specifically clicking on this podcast is because people have either a, a vested interest or they're managing people and they kind of want to know a bit more about how to do that well when we're looking at bereavement and loss. And having worked with a lot of cops and staff over the years, we've we've been talking today about how you deal with death every day in what you do for a living you know and that's what happens in this organization isn't it that's a big part of what you do but when you're looking at it from a personal perspective that's a whole other ball game yeah and i think in the police service we've almost got a culture that we try and save people from mm. death in a way that in the medical profession perhaps death is part of it they save some patients they don't i think there is a real heroism that is cultural in the place mm. that we try and save you from having something really bad happen mm. and when something really really bad happens we lose lives mm. so i think for us we try and prevent it so therefore when it does happen to us particularly in our personal lives mm. or in in alignment with our duty it's really difficult for us to process it culturally. Mm. 
Definitely. Yeah, there's a real difference there, isn't there, actually, when you think about it in that way. I know both of you have had experiences yourselves of bereavement and loss, and that's kind of where this conversation has come from, really. So are you both happy to share a little bit about your context? And yeah, are you okay to Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for me, I've had um, two significant bereavements over the last 12 months. Mm. Um, my um, older brother um, died last May, and my mum died in February of this year. Um, it was my mum that's had the biggest impact on me. Um, she had Alzheimer's for 15 years and was comatose for seven. So mm. my life of um, my normal, for want of a better expression, was going and visiting her every week in the care home, watching mm. her being tanned every two to three hours for seven years in total. Mm. So when it came, um, I was expecting I would feel relief and that didn't happen at all. Mm. Um, and not many people that I was aware of could actually empathise with me in terms of the length of time. So, you know, that, um, that ambiguous loss all the time. I grieved when she got diagnosed 15 years ago. Um, I grieved when she went into the care home nine years ago. Uh, and for the last 18 months, she was stopping breathing, stopping swallowing. So it was just a matter of time and I thought I'd get that relief. Um, it wasn't actually until three months after her death that um, my head came out of the sand is the best way I can describe it I just didn't want to deal with it Um, everyone around me could see it wasn't me and people, my managers and this is one of the reasons why I'm doing it now and I appreciate it, it's still quite raw for me Mm. but that for me my managers could see that I wasn't my usual self no matter how difficult the times had been you know previously um but my you know that saying of oh i'm fine i'm fine i'm fine you say it often enough you start to actually believe it Mm. um that's why i think you know i'm doing this now because i think it's important managers understand it's not about just asking someone are you okay it's actually listening to them and creating space for that conversation i think because how many times a day do people say how are you and we kind of yeah. go, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. And you can have, I, I remember vividly a, a couple of years ago, there was a lot going on in me, for me in my life. And somebody said, how are you doing? And I went, yeah, yeah, I'm good, thanks. As I was signing in somewhere and I knew this person. And I thought, I can't even begin to tell you what, yeah. what is actually going on at the minute. Um, because mm-hmm. it was not the right time. And, but there was loads I could have said. And we do that with, with bereavement mm-hmm. and loss. And when we've lost somebody close, um, it, how do you start that conversation, yeah. you know? It's you just, tricky. you just, to me personally, I just didn't want to come across as being such a, a miserable, mm. sad person mm. when actually I was yeah. a miserable, sad person. Yeah. But people expect, you know, me. Oh, that's Sandy Powdrell. She's always got a smile on her face, mm. and she likes to, you know, she comes to work to enjoy herself. And I want enjoying life, never mind yeah. work. Yeah. Um, so and, and that was all to do with grief mm. and bereavement and, and actually accepting it and doing something about it. And, and I think accepting sadness is really hard to do, isn't it? Because oh, yeah. actually <laughs> we don't allow ourselves to do that and we can get on that hamster wheel of I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Yeah. Put your mask on every day, you go into work and you, you, you know, think you're being really productive and yeah. that nobody's and noticing. <laughs> but actually it can be seeping out that, that sadness and 
you know, kind of just loss of direction and, and you know, feeling yeah. unhappy and upset. And that can be coming out in different ways that you don't even realise, I think, sometimes. Yeah. Well, the people, like you said, people you've worked with for a long time can maybe think, hang on a minute, something's not quite right there. But you'd probably keep going a lot longer unless someone actually said to you, I don't think you're okay. Yeah, and that's what it took for me. Mm. Um, I, I, COVID and the pandemic mm. gave me a perfect opportunity to forget about my mum mm. and I did that for three months mm. until one of my managers said we're really worried about you and it was having that conversation so you know it, it's them listening to me and being supportive I think sometimes as a manager when you've got a member of staff who's you know suffering with bereavement and and has lost a loved one that the person who's had the loss feels that they can't grieve mm. and the person the manager is actually scared to say to them look if you need time out work mm. that's fine if you need to you know take some annual leave or if you want to go to your GP you know depending on their circumstances mm. it's a part of life isn't it mm. that we've all got to accept um, it's going to happen mm. <laughs> and, and it's learning to just learn to, to manage it and to cope with it. Yeah, it's it's absolutely part of life. We all we all experience it, don't we? Either, you know, as mm. we're getting. I think we were talking before we can't start recording about as you get older, this starts to happen more. You know, yeah. we start to lose <clears throat> our parents, and you know, um, there's a generational shift. Um, and I think within organisations as well, depending on the age of the workforce, depends on how that's going to happen and, yeah. and, and that comes in waves sometimes as well can quite a lot of people struggling yeah. at any one time I think again it's just that to me what helped with the manager then it said the advice I would always give is I can remember talking to other people where I said about my mum's got Alzheimer's and um, she's got a do not resuscitate order and I'm waiting for her to pass away which is horrific mm. and I would get from other people oh yeah my grandma's like that mm. or my granddad's like that and I wanted to scream at them this is my mum yeah. <laughs> Or mum, however you want to say it. You know, this is my mum I'm talking mm. about. And it just felt so difficult um, that it, it is a case of don't try and sympathise. Mm. Even don't try to empathise sometimes. It's just, it's just listening, isn't it? Learn to listen. Mm. You know, one of the things during this time that my husband's learn is to learn. He's learned to listen. He <laughs> really has. My husband's learned to listen, and I just See, that's you know, something positive. This absolutely, and I'm all for we're looking for the silver lining. <laughs> um, it has taken me to contact our employee assistance program, mm. and I've had five sessions um, of bereavement counselling, mm. purely because I just after a death and three months after a death, there was this void that I just didn't know how to fill. Mm. Um, I didn't know what to do Mm. Um, and they helped me through it Mm. Um, and considering in my role I was the one who actually chose that tendering process so I had to be very careful when I actually rang them and and got that support in place because I didn't want to tell them who I Mm. I was because I thought they might just give me that little bit better service Mm. so you know I made a few things up and the service they gave me was absolutely exemplary. It was mm. brilliant. It really helped me. Don't you think as focus. well being able to access that support at a time when it's ready for you and yeah. you can get it straight away? Yeah. Because I think that's one of the key things. I know for me it's, at, at Fortis it's really important that we don't have waiting lists. I want people, if people have picked up the phone and said, I want to access my support, they need to be in. Yeah. Because the process has started. Whereas if you've got to wait 
um, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks to access a service. It's you, you, too late. Yeah, you're left with it, really. And you've yeah. already made a decision that you want some support. So, Yeah, yeah I rang him from my bed mm. um, in the morning when no one else was around. They rang me an hour later, booked an appointment for later on in the afternoon. Mm. And I was talking to a, a counsellor by the afternoon. Yeah, brilliant. Um, so yeah, I can strongly recommend it, mm. and I appreciate there's a time and a place for telephone counselling. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I've had both. I've had psychotherapy. I've had EMDR. Mm. You know, to then have um, this you know, telephone counselling for, for for bereavement. Mm. Um, yeah, I think for me it was the right thing to do. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's all part of what's on offer, isn't it? And you know, now actually as well, we yeah. we've had to move everything online. So you know we're yeah. using different platforms things that wouldn't have been available really or people wouldn't have engaged with before so yeah. i think telephone counseling anything that helps really yeah you're listening to the keeping the peace podcast brought to you in partnership with fortis therapy and training oscar kilo and humberside police Nancy, what from your perspective? I know you started to tell me a little bit before yeah. what what your story so is. So mine and... is very different than Sandy's, yeah. and and mine um, death I think comes in different forms, doesn't yeah. it? There's no one death that everybody experiences, and that's what it is. So um, I had a ten year old sister who was murdered walking home from junior school, and mm. I grew up in the aftermath of her death. Mm. So if you like, my normal I get is really abnormal, yeah. uh, and in that generation you didn't talk about it; you just had to process it yourself Mm. so um, I've not been one of these people who has reached out about it but Mm. I've been very curious all the way through my sort of developmental years and then into adult life about not only why people do such horrendous acts but also how do you survive and perform as a human being after that because you can imagine I see the ripple effects throughout my family some dealing with it better than others and for me, um, that instance doesn't end because I've had to attend parole board hearings where, you know, the offender, there's decisions to let him out of jail, those kind of things. And, you know, everybody who's lost anybody has birthdays and death days mm. and Christmas days that you have to get through. That particular death day, because it's such a horrific death day, mm. it's just something I can't find the words to explain to mm. somebody else. But when I take my personal experience and then I overlay it with my professional position, what I do find is if I meet people, I can tell if they've been through a trauma. There is something that I can sense in them. Mm, like a sixth sense. Yeah, mm. and, and I also find that um, if people are struggling with difficult things to talk about, they'll come and talk to me about it. And, and part of me wanting to do that today and discuss mm. it is, because there will be somebody listening right now who feels really alone and mm. really isolated by it. And, and just as Sandy said, people don't know how to talk about death. They don't know how to deal with you when you're upstairs they're upset you know they want to make you feel better and to stop crying and kind of patch you up particularly mm. in the police service and move you on and some things you don't just move on from mm. they they change you fundamentally who you are mm. and you have to work through what is a really difficult time period mm. regardless of how that death has occurred whether it's a family member whether it's a child etc you know there are all different types of that mm. And there are ones which I would call a natural death. So when my father died, he was an elderly man who had a heart attack. You know, he'd had something horrible happen in his life, the loss of a child. But he'd had a good life Mm. as well. And I could rationally, cognitively deal with that Mm. in a way that I think most people could process. It's horribly sad, but you love your dad. The the love never goes and and things move on Mm. and you still miss them. The other death of my sister, I will never make peace with that Mm. because it is just so abnormal. Mm. How do you try and normalise that? But 
Um, I don't do this for sympathy because I have a great life, mm. but I just want someone who's listening to this who feels alone at maybe 2 a.m. when they're listening to it to yeah. think, do you know, there was one thing that they said in that podcast mm. that helps me right now, and that's all I want to do is to give back. Mm. Equally in my professional life as a manager, I've had two people who have worked for me in service who've died at very young age. Mm. And having to process that both for individuals, for their family, their line managers, co-workers, etc., just to share a little bit of what my learning has been around that mm. and to make people feel it's okay to talk with someone who's really upset about something. Mm. And I think those personal experiences you both described, they they are something that, they're your personal experiences, as you said, but it informs how you then can recognise those signs in others, you can empathise, you know, and um, also that you know it's an individual experience, you know, nobody's going to go through this in the same way, and it's messy, isn't it? Yeah. Whether you've just lost somebody, whether you've lost them 10 years ago, whether you've grown up in the aftermath of that, as you've just described, um, it, it, it's just messy emotions and it can feel, I think, very isolating because it is so individual. You know, people can say, oh yeah, I felt a bit like that or I get that. I don't really get it. No, we, we were talking like, in the beginning, it's really yeah. raw. It's like a really punch in the stomach yeah. kind of feeling. Yeah. But I was just saying to Sandy, for me, it's a little bit like motion sickness. Yeah. I never know when I'm going to get it and it just hits you like a wave that you have a very physical, emotional and mental reaction to. Yeah. And then it just passes. Mm. And someone may not know they've said something that triggered you to three, two, one, out of the room you go, you have yes. a little thought process and then you come back in the room. You're still the same person, but you are physically and emotionally and mentally reacted to something in a way that they will never know. Mm. You know, there's certain keywords that are triggers, you know, that just push you mm. and then you come back again. And it can be anything, can't it? It can be it can be keywords, it can be it can be um, aromas, it can be music, it can be yeah. all these things that kind of you know, or you hear something on the radio or you know, you listen to a podcast and someone yeah. says something yeah. and you think, Oh god, that really it's like a sucker punch and you think, God, I've got to think about that or yeah. I want to avoid that and come away from it. Well, we both said that that, that if someone's chosen to click on this, mm. it's because they need to do something about what they're feeling mm. at the time. And we both talked about the delaying tactics we both use to distract because I don't want to feel all of that. Mm. And, and I described mine as a pressure cooker. Mm. So as long as I can keep the lid on, occasionally it rattles, I take a couple of scoops out the top, but I'm not going to the bottom of that pan because mm. there is nothing good for me at the bottom of that pan. Mm. And ultimately I can't get the answers that I want to get no. so it's how do I be a functioning adult and if people saw me in my professional life they'd never think anything no. you know that I was carrying this yeah. you know around but that's where you don't know what's going on for somebody and I, and I think sometimes I mean obviously I'm a therapist so I would you know a lot of people will come and talk and, and we do go into those things that feel really difficult and uncomfortable and that's part of the process but not everybody needs to do that no because you you don't need to always you know it's it's the same thing mm. with abuse it's the same thing with all these kind of traumatic events we don't have mm. to relive them in order to be able to come mm. to terms to be able to manage you're right there's going to be waves at time there's going to be t there's going to be occasions where you feel overwhelmed by this emotion and and you know kind of knocks you off your feet and then mm. it goes away sometimes as quickly as it's appeared mm. um but being able to learn techniques around distraction and just taking your head away from it because sometimes yeah. you need a break yeah don't you it's just to me it's it's so it's still quite raw for me mm. um but it's about processing it mm. you know and knowing there's a to, to me there's a time and a place mm. so you know at the very beginnings i would wake up in the morning and remember and it would upset me mm. um now i don't even you know you, you get to a stage and i think it's fair to say so anyone listening to this is that you've just got to go with the flow of it. And mm. so many people said to me, 
when you know within the first three months of, of her passing away that it's just like a roller coaster it will come in waves yeah and I was thinking well yeah it does but when does when does the tsunami stop yeah. when does the waves start to actually calm down mm. and how do you get it to calm down <clears throat> yeah. without sometimes I think without that support it won't necessarily calm down no. and um, I've heard other people say well you know if you're still grieving a year after they've passed away then you need that support I think actually it's it's a personal thing. I've been grieving my mum nine years. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's, it's how open you are to that. So I'm at the other spectrum. I've got a really be strong driver that's yeah. off the Richter scale. That's probably typical of the police station. Yeah. And I will choose when I talk about this and with whom I talk. And it's very infrequent. And I've got to say, mm. I've never met anybody who's got any symptom. Um, similarity to my personal circumstances so one of the things I find quite hard is that there's nobody like me who understands mm. what I have gone through mm. uh, and that's yeah. not in a self-centered way but I just think for people who are listening out there that there is that thing that that's what helps make you feel more alone mm. and it's harder because you can't if someone's broken their leg mm. you can ask anybody about it and they can tell you how their leg got broken how they fixed it how long it took etc mm. this kind of breaking doesn't have that logical process no. to it no. uh, and because people I think are so frightened about being vulnerable and to risk losing control because you know you start crying and all those kind of things um it's very difficult to bring up uh, and I think for my response I probably I my friend of mine says I intellectualize emotional issues which are now in the word but I want to think my way out of it I yes. don't necessarily want to feel my way out no. of it now I've had overwhelming feel situations because you know what going into a parole board hearing yeah. where the press are waiting for you he's going to be in the room you know I have been saturated with feel and particularly with fear yeah. and that is for me why it's just like I've had that mm. I really don't like being in that place no. so I choose as a strategy to do that whether that's right mm. or wrong it mm. kind of works for me and it's mm. the way I've grown up doing it mm. I'm not saying that's the right way either because equally if someone comes to me I'm really comfortable if someone comes to me and has tears because mm. you know they've done studies about tears mm. and stressed tears are made up of something completely different than distressed tears mm. well there's a reason we've evolved that way yeah. it's a natural way to get rid of stress out of the body so I'm really comfortable with people sat crying I can sit with them and then mm. sit you know forever long it takes for them to do that but I think you need to let them do that if that's what they need to do. Mm. I think we need to allow yeah. ourselves to do that as well because mm. we, we, we can stop ourselves, can't we? Really, we, we, we kind of go, oh God, I feel upset about that and I come away. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and we kind of avoid going into those emotions because we feel like, you know, there might be feelings about being weak or seen, being seen to be vulnerable or, you know, not capable yeah. or whatever. And actually it's a natural part of our responses and that tsunami you were describing there that we, there might be a tsunami that's happening for several months yeah. and then it starts to become something that's a bit less intense but it's still mm -hmm. there and um, we go backwards and forwards so you might step, take a step forward and you take two steps back yeah. I think that's the other thing yeah. that well it's like you said it's been a year What's but I think problem? you can have a physical yeah. response to it so yeah. I know if if my body does not want to talk about this it tries to shut me down mm -hmm. and it's a really bizarre way because even though we're recording today and it must be what the hottest day of the year it's about <laughs> 25 30 degrees <laughs> we can't have the fan on because we're recording yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, if, it, if it 
if my body says I don't want to talk about this emotionally, it actually makes me go, go cold and my teeth will physically chatter, even on a day like today, mm. because my normal response is if I've been out for a dog walk and I'm really cold, I either get in the bath or I get in the bed and I go to sleep. Yeah. And that stops the need to talk about it. Yeah. So it's literally like my body just says, nope, we're not doing this. Yeah. I'm going to physically and stop out. you. Mm. I will start teeth chattering and then eventually it starts to block my throat and my ability mm. to swallow. Yeah. Uh, and it's just, it's something as I've noticed you know as I've got older and just thought that is really bizarre as a physiological but I understand intellectually that my body's just saying we're not going through that yeah. trauma yeah. I am closing down you're going on to snooze mm. yeah. and, and sleeping actually I mean it, that it's a it's there for a reason you know we we want to cut out um, and often you know when we talk about feeling depressed mm. or low we sleep yeah. because we need to recover and it just stops our brain it stops us overthinking because you're right that intellectual side of it we have that but it it can help us but it can also hinder us um, and get in the way of us processing what's happening emotionally so being able to cut out sometimes whether whatever that is whether it's going for a sleep or whether it's going for a walk or it's doing something else um you know years ago um i had i suffered with trauma and i used to just swim because no one could talk to me i could just do you know lap after lap after lap and it was process time and i could just get into that state Mm. of kind of coming away from what was going on uh, for me emotionally and it was it was physically tiring as well yeah. um, and emotionally I'd, I'd got myself through it by the time I got out of the pool mm-hmm. so you find your way don't you with what works for you mm-hmm. and it is very specific I think um, and then you don't always know what works for you until until you do it you, until you do it. it for me it's Zumba yeah dancing okay. yeah, yeah. in exactly the oh, same see, way see I would just get that wrong it's tiring, <laughs> well it's tiring it's fun yeah. it doesn't matter whether you can do the dance moves or not no. you know and, and that yeah, it gives you that headspace, mm-hmm. and and say just from a, a a work point of view, being away from work for a period of time gives you that headspace, gives you that chance just to how can I put it, um, just to process what's happened, mm-hmm. and accept actually you, you what I find and what I've seen in, in other people as well especially when, when I've been a, as a manager and I've um, in my professional life some of the people I've had to support from people services when they've got terminal illnesses and you get to know them you get to know their families and then when they pass away it would still upset me because I am a crier mm. I, I don't think I've ever been to a funeral where I've not cried mm. um, so, and I've been to a lot of funerals because I've been here for a long time and a lot of people have died unfortunately but going into, oh, sorry, I forgot where I was coming. So, but going into actually, when, when someone's passed away and it's personal, I found what I was doing that I wasn't expected to do. I thought I would fall apart. I thought I would just cry because mm. I'm a crier. Mm. Um, and I thought life would just then carry on. But what happened with, with for me and what I've seen in other people is that actually you just put it on a shelf and you carry on as normal, thinking it's normal. Mm. I've seen it where I've been managing other people where they've lost the parents, and they've said, oh, I want to come back next week. You know, I've been off a week, I want to come back next week, and they haven't even had the funeral. And I've said, no, you're not coming back. Mm. You can work from home if you want to, but I don't think it's the right thing for you to come back. Mm. And they haven't always appreciated that, because then I'd stay in touch with them, making sure they're not alone, that mm. they have got that support there. And then when they reflect later on, they say, I'm glad you stopped me from coming in because, yeah, I needed that support. But coming into the workplace, everyone feels sorry for you. You feel like you're the focus. Mm. Um, 
like getting stared at you get with Bambi at. eyes yeah. oh that's yeah. awful oh, oh, I've done that and I, I, I don't feel, do that yeah that's not helpful <laughs> you, you'd said Nancy that you, you've got this bucket and you haven't gone to the bottom of it yeah. I actually feel like I've gone to the bottom of it and I've actually poked a hole in it yeah. because it's took for it to leak for me to be able to, to move on because it's gone on for that long I think the, the key word there is normal so when you've had a bereavement, nothing is normal. And people talk about, you know, when it goes back to normal. Well, you don't have, you, you have a new normal. You go through something very abnormal and then you create a new normal. And yeah. as human beings, I think we create, we crave that routine, don't we? So that's yeah. why people say, I want to get back to work or I want to organise the funeral. And, and you get into all those kind of ritual things yeah. that you do. But you find yourself stood in the aisle picking toothpaste. Yep. And having this random out-of-body experience where you look at everybody like, why is the world still yeah, going on? Yeah, why are you all carrying walking around When me? my life has just got mm. shattered. Mm. Uh, and that's when I think you've got to recognise that there mm. is some good routine yeah. that you do need to have. Mm. Um, and you do need to have some time when you process it. And everybody's different. And I guess my plea to line managers who are sat listening to this is, your staff are all going to do this differently. Mm. And there is no right way or wrong way. And it's not you've had two weeks bereavement leave and then you come back and everything's normal and you're back to tickety-boo. Because mm. that's not the case. You know, processing and getting to the funeral, for me, I think is the easiest bit because you're, you're in shock and you're yeah. transactionally dealing with something. You've got a task. You've got a job yeah. to do. The bereavement starts for me after the funeral. Yeah, I mean, we've just, we're in COVID-19 territory at the minute and obviously people haven't been able to do those, those processes yeah. in the way that we would expect to. And you can't give anybody a hug right now. No. So someone's had some, which, mm. you know, I've got to say I'm in two minds about, because when you're coming back and someone hugs you and gives you Bambi eyes, it doesn't help because the waterworks yeah, start. Yeah. But equally, there is that thing of humanity that you want to show somebody I care. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've, mm. I was talking to somebody recently who'd lost a friend um, over lockdown and he'd gone to the funeral for this person. Obviously, there was only, I think, 10 people allowed mm. in at that point. So there was a lot of people that were in the churchyard and they were kind of stood outside. Um, and there were people live streaming it and um, there was quite a lot of anger that somebody was doing that and actually somebody was doing that because a lot of people couldn't come to the funeral and um, but there wasn't any of that physical touch there wasn't the usual kind of you know kind of getting hold of somebody and just saying are you okay and um, and and we're disabled with that you know we we Mm. do like that we're social beings and you know some people will say well that's my my worst nightmare I'm quite happy for people to stay away but generally speaking we want that kind of connection with other people I know two people who've lost people in the police family where there's been a police funeral Mm. and both families have asked for the for the uh, event to be recorded Mm. because when they were in it they couldn't see it they were just but they wanted to be able to keep it not only for them and and a a particular couple of them were young women but to be able to show it to their kids Mm. to say this is how much you're grandmother who's not now here was respected Uh, and as they said you know they just were through streams of tears but afterwards they could see the people who were there at the event that they hadn't seen and so I think what we view as normal in terms of you know Victorian images of wear black and you know all of that so now it's very different we grieve in different ways and and in a way that has helped us to recognize that hasn't it because we have had to um over these last few months really to grieve in different ways and Mm. whether that's felt okay or not it's just different to what we've done before and I, i think that kind of idea of what is normal puts people under a lot of pressure it's quite it's quite oppressive really because we feel like we've got to do something in a particular way yeah and if it doesn't fit for you and that's not what works for you that's not going to help you 
Well, we were talking about, you know, you have the humour, don't you, after a death, the immediate, that you know, they call it dark humour, yeah. but it's part of your stress release. And the giggling yeah. can get quite a bit hysteria sometimes. Yeah, regardless. when you're yeah, talking yeah. about crazy things that these people have done in their lives, etc. But then after that, and sort of after the funeral, we were both talking about that first time when you feel happy mm. following their death, and then you feel guilty mm. for feeling happy again. Mm. And, and it's just this real complex world that you have got to go through to come out to a new version of normality for you yeah yeah i said i'm happy to share you know when you talk about what's normal um i don't think i'm normal in any shape or form and i wouldn't want to be to be quite <laughs> frank with me you. either i'm with but you <laughs> what, what i will share with the listeners as well is whatever works for you when you're going through that of that grief is is just right for you so some of the things i did and this is where you might think i'm a complete weirdo here and i don't care because i'm going to share it <laughs> yeah is that when i went to see my mum in the rest home and I took a photograph of her, you know, because mm. I wanted a photograph. Mm. See, I'm getting upset, but that's, fine, no, that's okay. But it was the right thing for me to do. If you're not going to get upset now, when are you? Exactly. Mm. And I also, um, I kept her eulogy. Yep. I've got it as an email. Um, I proofread the actual a service, you know, where they put pictures on of her, and, and it was a humanist one. She wasn't religious yep. in any shape or form. But I, me and my brother, the, the day, actually it was about three days after her death, I got him to sit with me and I typed up a eulogy mm. we, and we did it together. Mm. There was no way we could have spoken, so we got a humanist to actually to, to, to say it. And we made sure we got the craziest woman we could find, because my mum loved crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the, the music, it was a case of, there was the, some of the music we, we chose was very personal. And at the end of it, one of the, the final song that we played was Meatloaf, <laughs> Paradise by the Dashboard Light. <laughs> this is to an 88-year-old oh, who's had Alzheimer's for 15 years. Now, people who knew my mum, who were there, would know that she used to sing that all the time, you know, and, and it was part of the eulogy, and it was the right thing for us to do. So mm-hmm. even if, and no one did say, oh, that's not appropriate, all I did have to forewarn her 91-year-old brother, Look, you know, Uncle Les, we're going to be playing this record and it's quite rocky, you know, as we're putting daffodils on a basket. So, um, but it, it's the right things to do. So, I, you know, I've got that eulogy and my, my two children who were adults, you know, early, early, late teens and, and early 20s, they came, obviously, to the funeral. And I've kept it, though, for when, if they get, or as they get older, if they say, what did we say, can you remember? Mm. You know, it's there just to share later on and mm. I don't so, know some some of the I'm music I'm going to in there with you because my, my family are farming background mm-hmm. so we put my dad's wellies in with him <laughs> so the Tony Robbins of the future when they dig the farm <laughs> that wasn't the only object either I mean he must have weighed another four stone heavier than my dad did yeah, but, he didn't but like I've got you, a combined harvester yeah. <laughs> the tractor didn't quite fit um, I, I too went to the care home and I've got to say if people are brave enough it's probably one of the best things I did and I went and I, I was with my dad and I sat and talked to him and I said everything I wanted to say yeah. to him and, and bizarrely I'd held his hand that long that he got warm again yeah. and this is when you know your mind is playing tricks on you because he felt like he was warm mm. so I was like well he can't be dead because he's warm and actually yeah. it was just the heat from my hand because I'd held it so long mm. and that's when you just know that you are in a different place when you're going through acute bereavement yeah. Yeah. but yeah don't worry I think probably every family is actually quite eccentric deep down it's just yeah. whether you know it or but not. And, and it's, and <laughs> it's okay though it's okay mm. to go through that and do 
you know, it, it's a bit to me. It's a bit like with weddings. When you're getting married, you feel like you've got to try and please everybody, mm. right? Well, the best thing I would say, having gone through the experiences I now have, is do what you want. You do it what you want. You mm. do what you think your your loved one would want you to do. Mm. You know, and what remember, feels right for uh, you. I remember someone saying to me that uh, funerals are about the living. Yeah, and I didn't definitely. know what that meant until I kind of went through it. Yeah. And it is. It's actually about making those people in the congregation feel better about yeah. the deceased at the front of the it's church. It's a process the for them, isn't yeah. it? It's a process yeah. for us to, to actually be able to say goodbye to somebody and say what we want to say and, yeah. and have a yeah. safe place to grieve, I suppose. And I think you celebrate that individual, what they meant to you, because mm-hmm. Sandy and I were talking earlier about coming in and, and we're saying about, you know, what happens if you get upset? And I said, well, the problem with death is death is actually all about love. Mm. Because you love these people, when you lose them, it hurts. Yeah. And would you rather have a life where you had no love in it? Mm. And that's the problem. You do love them, you do care about them, and therefore there's a cost to that when they're not there. Mm. And that's the difficulty. Mm. But would Christ. you want a loveless life? Mm. If, we'd, if we had got the listener in tears now, would we never will. <laughs> Somewhere in, in one mad sentence or another, yeah. probably not the one about the wellies, but um, <laughs> someday we'll say, I, I got that and I wasn't alone yeah. and someone else. Because... You know, it'll be 2am and you're listening to this podcast by yourself in the dark yeah. somewhere, won't it? But mm. I think it's one of those, I, I was trying to be very proactive because I'm quite a B-strong character as well. And I can remember listening to podcasts on a night time because I want sleeping. And a lot of them were really quite trying to be uplifting. Yeah. You know, I was listening to me, uh, meditation and just listening to some, some counselling tips. And I got to the stage, I was just angry about it. Yeah. So, you know, you've got yeah. to do it when it's right for you. You do, and I think it's what works for you, because, some, you know, you might have found something that really works for you, but wouldn't work for me. Yeah. And I think it's accepting that, you know, when you're working in an organisation like this, I think a lot of people who work in the police have a be strong driver, you know? Yeah. That's, that's part of what you're here to do, is to be strong mm. for people who are out there, who need you, as you said, to protect or fix or rescue whatever whatever however you're seen um and to actually say as someone who's supposed to be strong i'm not feeling strong at the moment is quite a tough thing to do and also for you know teams and managers and leaders to recognize when someone's not in that place and to have a conversation about that is also hard to do because you know you're there to to be strong that's what you're there to be and i think part of it as growing up as an adult what the challenge is is how you work out to say i'm not okay Yes. So a crab on its back is more comfortable than me asking for help. Mm. So I have to work out as a be strong person. How do I tell somebody I'm not okay and how do I ask for help? Mm. And because of the way I'm designed, it has to be on my terms. Yeah. So if someone says to me, are you okay? And I just think, I can't be bothered to talk to you. Well, you are the last person on the planet I want to talk to. I will just deflect them. Yeah. And I'm skillful enough that I can just deflect them, even mm. if I'm having a dreadful day. Yeah. But what I need to do is find a way that I can get to somebody. A little bit like what you said, I needed to pick up the phone and ring somebody at that time, at that yeah. time of day. Yeah. There are people that you need to find out and you need to work out what works for you because mm. nobody can teach you this no. but I guess what I would then implore managers to do is just because you found a way doesn't mean that it works for somebody else. It's not the else. right way for everybody. No. And if I was to give one person a piece of advice if you've got someone who walks in bereaved is don't judge, don't say just sit and listen, mm. they'll tell you. Mm. And yeah, then and try and time, hear actually. what they are telling you mm. and hear what they're not telling you. Mm. Yeah, I think it is. It's what's it's the subtext, isn't it, to what's going on as well, and all the other non-verbal cues and everything else that you can see. Don't I think it's trusting your gut feeling. We we have a human response to other people, and actually recognizing that this person isn't okay. I don't really know why. Yeah. 
yeah. that I can clearly see and giving the space to time and talk and, about that. And it's that. also about um, treating me like I was Nancy before. So, mm-hmm. you know, that Bambi eyes thing really doesn't work for me. Um, <laughs> don't and, for me either. <laughs> and, you know, all it does is keep me upset and whatever. And actually, what I might want is I might want a bit of that, but I want you to treat me like normal. Like you know me. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I'm still me. And I, I think you see this um, it, with people who cross the road who pr- want to pretend they haven't seen you. And all, yeah. well, you know, just when you've had a death. Now, you know, for my colleagues who are going to the homes of victims where they've had someone killed in traumatic situation, etc., please kind of take that learning with you when you go in there because they feel doubly isolated. I know in my family's experience, it was almost like we were unlucky to be around. So people avoided us even yeah. more, yeah. which makes you even more isolated. Yeah. And you know, you're the one. And if you know if it becomes public, then it's even worse because like everybody's staring and pointing at you, etc. And it's the only thing your surname becomes known for. Mm. So there is something for me about recognise and be the human that reaches out. Mm. Don't leave them on their own, even if you, you know, you're dropping food round for them and they don't want to talk. You, you know, yeah. it's just the fact yeah. that I was thinking of you. It's a nurturing part, isn't it? You're nurturing someone and recognise. You know, like you say, you drop food around with somebody you're just recognizing that you're showing that I you're care. there if you need them and you know yeah. and you care i think the other thing as well is is knowing who not to talk to yeah yes because there are mood hoovers yep there are people who you know mm. will who i don't know love, love to be drama. yeah love to be in the drama love yeah. to be needed and pour some petrol on it <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah the bambi eyes thing about yeah. oh but you don't you know don't you want to talk and 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 actually sometimes it's recognizing who doesn't help you mm. yeah definitely i think you, you tend to you i certainly have found out who my real friends are yeah you know i didn't really need to calculate or work that out i think i already knew but yeah you but acutely in focus when you when you mm. need support yeah definitely. Well, you don't need your mates when you've won the lottery do you no it's at the difficult end of the yeah. scheme where you need people yeah. to step up and people either do step up or they don't know how to step up. that tells you so much, doesn't it? Yeah, and, mm. and I guess, you know, one of the things we've not uh, sort of talked about is, is when, uh, and I've had it a couple of times now, where people are in a terminal illness case and work mm. with you mm-hmm. or work for you. Mm. Um, and that's quite difficult yeah. when, who do they talk to? Because quite often they don't want to talk to their family because it upsets them. So they, they may come to you as a line manager and I've had people say, you know, will you take care of my will for me? Will you mm-hmm. ensure that, you know, the funeral, I've sat with someone whilst they organised their own funeral about what they did and they didn't want. Um, I had one lady who thankfully has made a full recovery from cancer but thought that she was in a life-limiting situation. Um, and we sat and talked about what she wanted for her children, etc. She even actually asked me if I'd marry her husband. Bizarrely, because <laughs> she said he would need to, someone to tell him what to do. Um, so uh, I declined at that point and I, and I thought perhaps he, he would make his own choice on that. But thankfully it never came to that event. But you do have, <laughs> these, above, mo- yeah, uh, you, you do yeah. have these bizarre conversations. But if you can't sit with somebody during that time, when mm. can you? Mm. And they need someone to talk honestly with them. Mm. And I think you've got to let people do that. I think as well those conversations are really hard to have with people who are in your family. You know, to yeah. go and find somebody who is connected to you but doesn't have that emotional yeah um i don't know connection i suppose um where you can almost voice it and work it through for yourself because even if the worst case scenario doesn't happen then you've had that thought process and it's almost like i've got my affairs in order and i think that is something that people feel a lot better for having done that you know there's there's less there's less ambiguity things feel like they're organized and i can now focus on what i've got to do here yeah yeah 
Thank you for talking about all of that. <laughs> We've covered a lot of ground there. Is there anything, just before we finish, is there anything in terms of kind of tips that you want to leave people with? You know, we've talked about talking to the right people. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you say, yeah, talk to the right people. Mm. Do what feels right for you. Mm. Acknowledge that you are not superhuman. Mm. That grief is a natural part of living. Mm. And you, you know, you can't be superwoman, superman. Mm. You just, you know, be aware that when you're going through this process, identify who the people are who you can go and talk to mm. and get the support mm. at the right time. Mm. Do what's right for you. Mm. And, and don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed by it. Don't, you know, you don't have to be strong all the time. You know, yeah, I my smiles come back on. You know, I've got. You will get through it. It'll take time, but everyone, you 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 will eventually get through it. But um, yeah, if you're listening to it now, mm. get some support. Get you know, get the help that you need. However you feel would work for you. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So I guess my one thing, if I had to boil it down, is we all have what I call the dark night of the soul mm. where it's always at 3am when mm. all your mates are asleep you don't want to wake anybody up um, and you think that this yeah, is yeah, just yeah. awful mm. the one thing I would say to people is I think it's normal to have that feeling where you feel so utterly wretched that your mind will take you to places where you think this would just be so much better yeah. if I didn't wake up tomorrow mm. and my advice to people or my plea to people under that is that is a momentary thought process. Do not stay in that place. Do whatever it takes to get yourself through the next 60 seconds, five minutes, 30 minutes, because afterwards you do realize that that was a real dark moment of the soul when you were alone at the worst time of the day. And that is, you have just got to keep going. Promise me that you will see that sunrise mm. and then think about it again. I really echo that. I think sometimes when you're feeling that those desperate feelings and those intrusive thoughts and you know you, you, you start to kind of go down that rabbit hole that yeah. actually um, it's it doesn't last it feels like it's gonna last forever yeah but it doesn't and it's having faith that actually time does help and that yeah. this won't last this feeling won't last yeah you know it's almost like having mantras this is just where I'm at today and it'll go and you know it is it's having those mantras like you say and also mm. to me is would your loved one want you to be in that dark place mm. you know forever mm. you know yeah yeah they just wouldn't they mm. would want you to get through this mm. and I and I think three o'clock in the morning is very difficult because Everything seems much, much worse, whatever it is, I think. Um, but knowing what works for you in order to kind of help you put one foot in front of the other. So what is it that I need to do to help myself feel a bit better than I do right now? And that might be something really simple. But there are things people can do, aren't there, that can help them to lift out of that very dark, uh, desperate place. Um, and also there's lots of help out there that's available, you know, and there are people who can support as well, you know, lots of national helplines and things that people can access to at 24 hours a day. Yeah. You know, so even if it feels like it's four in the morning and no one's interested, actually there is somebody who's interested and there's somebody there who will take that call. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Keeping the Peace podcast. It's available wherever you listen to your podcasts and if you subscribe, you'll be notified of the next episode as soon as it's available. We'd love to hear your feedback and ideas for future podcasts, so please do comment or get in touch on our social media platforms for either Fortis Therapy and Training or Oscar Kilo.